as is uh, customary, let's review in order to get our bearings and our context of how we got here. Um, how about this? Let's start from chapter one. Really, really, we're going to do it really quickly. Um, chapter one, I'm introduced to the concept of the struggle between the two souls. First, I learn about the existence of the animal soul, which is the survival impulse, the consummately selfish drive. Chapter two, I learn about the godly soul, the selfless drive, the uh, desire to become subsumed in the oneness. Chapter three, I learn about the faculties, the cognition and emotion of the godly soul. Chapter four, it's three garments or modes of expression. Chapter five, it's food, which is Torah study. Then chapter six, I flip it and I learn about the composition and the modes of expression of the animal soul. Chapter seven and eight are about negativity in the world around us, redeemable negativity, stuff you can use, you can turn it into a mitzvah, and stuff that you can't use, you gotta leave it alone. And with one through eight, I basically have my lexicon. Remember we call that our gross anatomy, like first year of medical, of medical school. For chapters one through eight is basically just the lay of the land, the terminology. Okay, sounds familiar? Reminds you of like uh, six months ago, whenever it is we started this? Okay. Then chapter 9 was the small city, King Solomon's metaphor or parable about the two kings fighting over one city. They both want total domination. So now we're talking about how the conflict between the two souls plays out. Then we have chapter 10, which is about how it happens in the tzaddik. The tzaddik wins the battle and only his godly soul is ruling. Chapter 11 is about the rasha. The rasha is not... Uh, has not vanquished the animal soul and it intermittently takes control and he sins in one of the modes of behavior, one of the three garments. Chapter 12, we start talking about the Benini. He has the insides of the Rosha, meaning he's totally conflicted, but he has the outsides of the Tzaddik, meaning total, total, total behavioral control. And chapter 13 and 14, we continue talking about the, the Benini and about how he is conflicted, but he, he controls himself, he doesn't have to change his emotions, he just has to curb his impulses. Mostly we focus on one tool, remember that one tool we focused on in chapter 12, 13, 14? Self-control. Yeah, it was self-control, and what's, what was the term from, from the... What was the term from the Zohar that the Alter Rebbe draws on? The brain rules the heart, and the way we learned it at first means Okay, fine, so you have an impulse that's sinful, but you can control it, and don't worry about it, you're not being judged for your impulse, you're being judged, not by others, but by, by God only, you're being judged for your, your actions, yeah, so just focus on action, okay. Chapter 15, we even spoke about two types of vanity, there could be a vanity who is a, he, 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 his struggle is minor, so he doesn't have to really uh, exercise so much self-control, and we said actually, when it comes to being a Benini, there's an intrinsic value to the struggle, so he's actually not serving Hashem because hes uh, it's too easy for him to be a Benini. He has to up the difficulty level. All right, remember that in 16 and 17, we, get, we gave a new twist to Mayach Shal the brain rules the heart, and we said, all right, now you're controlling your behavior, you're curbing your impulse, you've got really good uh, inhibition, focusing on the behavior, don't worry about the emotion, but they can't be all there is. 
and we start to bring in the emotions, and we start to try to get those congruent with our behaviors that we're already controlling, and we taught a new tool in 16 and 17, which is also my child life, a new twist on my child life, which is not just ignore your feelings and override them, but begin to slowly change your feelings. And what was the method for changing your feelings? Meditation, right. Because you can't will yourself to have a new emotion. You can't tell yourself, no, that feeling is wrong. Change the, change the feeling. We don't have direct control. But feelings come from thoughts. They're the children of our intellect. And we can choose our thoughts. And if we choose to meditate on the greatness of God, we will create those emotions. And then we will gain some of that internal uh, congruency with our behaviors, with our holy behaviors. We'll have some holy emotions to back them up. Okay? And so then we learn that 16 and 17, we're going to meditate. And how long does it take for meditation to work? A lifetime. A lifetime. Yeah, it's a lifetime project. Okay? I mean, it works incrementally. It, it works a little bit at a time, but it's not something you just go in the corner and meditate and say, oh, wow, that was, was life-changing. No, you keep doing it a little bit at a time the rest of your life. Then we said, in case of emergency, break glass. If you're trying to get some emotional congruency and you need it quickly, you need an emotional boost, we had 18 through 25, eight chapters we did in one class. What was the point there? You're hardwired with a survival impulse. I'm talking about your godly soul. Has, a, has its own survival impulse. That if it becomes clear that you are going to be ripped apart from God, God forbid, through your next choice, like for instance, worshiping idols, then there's this spiritual adrenaline rush where the godly soul can take over your whole system and override the emotions of the animal soul and give you this incredible rush of motivation to do anything and make any sacrifice in order to make the right choice. And we spoke about, and I'm not going to review how it works because that's what took eight chapters, but we spoke about how to get that intense feeling even in a day-to-day -day regular situation. That was 18 through 25. Okay, so then, 1 through 25 I told you is basically a perfect system because 1 through 8 is our lexicon, 9 through 15 is our... Uh, example of how, or examples of how that gets played out in different uh, types of people. 16 and 17, well, and, and, and the, with the recommendation of control yourself. 16 and 17 was a new recommendation, an additional recommendation, not just control yourself, but change yourself through meditation. 18 through 25 was sort of a, a, a backup plan that works quickly in the meantime while you're waiting for 16 and 17 to, uh, to have an effect. And what else could you need? And remember why? What, remember when we came to chapter 26, I said, what are we doing here? What are we, what, why, why are there more chapters in Tanya? Remember what we said? Hmm? Troubleshooting. Yeah, that was the word we used. Meaning, in a perfect world, if you had nothing to, Jackie Mason has a line, I have enough money to live on for the rest of my life if I never buy anything. <laughs> So, in a perfect world, if you had no other life to deal with, and you just had chapters 1 through 25 to implement for the rest of your life, you'd be fine. But in reality, you're implementing chapters 1 through 25 in the context of living a life. And life is not always a piece of cake. Not always. 99.9% .9 of the time, life is a piece of cake. But, you, you agree with my number? Okay, well, no one reacted. Okay, 
So, life can have its challenges. So, 26 says, we got to stay happy, we got to stay focused, we got to stay upbeat. And, and not because we are idolizing happiness in and of itself. Remember my commentary when we started chapter 26. The world around us, the culture, the predominant culture around us, values joy as like this idol, this intrinsic value. You have to be happy. Why? Just for the sake of happiness itself. Well, no, we don't say that. What we say is you have to serve Hashem. You have to serve Hashem. And you have to serve Hashem well. And you do everything better. You execute on a much higher level of proficiency and performance when you are happy. Anything you do, you do better when you're happy. So we got to stay happy so that we can do chapters 1 through 25. We can implement that system. Chapter 26, the first half, we spoke about what do you do when worldly troubles. Worldly troubles means regular problems. Children or family issues, health issues, money issues, and everything else that goes under those three categories. And we talk about reframing it and finding the, the hidden good, higher good. Second half of chapter 26, we spoke about what about the holy excuse for getting depressed, which is guilt. You feel bad about your past sins. So we spoke about how to deal with that. Chapter 27, we spoke about, well, what if it's shame that I feel in the present, that I'm appalled at my own impulses, the things that I'm drawn to and attracted to. Not that I would do, because I know they're sinful, but the kinds of things that my animal soul still finds uh, desirable. And we spoke about how to get over that. Not only should you not get depressed about that, we, we Learned a method, yeah, rejoice, be happy about it. It's an opportunity. I know it sounds counterintuitive if you didn't learn chapter 27, but those are the types of uh, bombshells that we find in, in each chapter. Chapter 28, we spoke about if someone's sad because every time he tries to daven, he gets distracting thoughts. And we, we flipped that one around too. Don't feel bad about that. To the contrary, it's a good sign. Chapter 29, we introduced a new emotional problem, not sadness, but something more insidious than sadness. Apathy. Apathy, right. Sadness, we all know that sadness is a problem. Nobody likes to be sad. Apathy is a problem because, it, like I said, it's more insidious than sadness. It's like when you don't care, so then you don't care that you don't care, and then it's hard to break out of that loop. So we spoke about how to shake yourself out of that apathy trap. What we called, remember what we called it by the way? What was the term the Alta Rebbe used for Tim apathy? Tim Tumalev. Yeah, blocked up heart, that the emotions aren't flowing through. And we gave the metaphor, it's also from the Zohar, the, the metaphor of the beam that won't catch fire. So what do you do? Splinter it, yeah, smash it, and then it'll catch fire. So too, when your body and your animal soul are not getting enthused with the flame of the godly soul, what do you got to do? Smash it. And what was the smashing that we were doing? Basically, we were making this really, really unflinching and sort of merciless... Uh, intervention. Yeah, we call it an intervention on ourselves, on ourselves. And we were making an inventory of all the dysfunction in our own in our own lives to smash the apathy of the animal soul, basically by um, 
forcing it to admit that it has nothing to be smug or complacent about. And, and remember, I said this is really harsh stuff, and it's uncharacteristically harsh of Tanya. You know, generally with, 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 in Tanya and Citizen General, we really focus on positivity. And remember, I even told you that the Rebbe said that, you know, sometimes, especially like in this generation, if it's going to bring you down, then we can just sort of, we have other methods for breaking through the, the ego. We can break through the ego with, with joy. The main objective is just to break through the ego. The methodology in chapter 29 is, is, a, is, is smashing. You're breaking down the ego through doing this, this, uh, this inventory where you're really going through and, and reviewing the deficiency of the animal soul in unflinching detail. Okay. That brings us to chapter 30. I think I may want to do chapters 30 and 31 together. Let's see how that works out. Chapter 30 is a direct continuation of chapter 29. We are still dealing with apathy. And thus, the tone of chapter 30 is harsh. Because we deal with apathy harshly. So I don't want to scare anybody. I'm making this big disclaimer from the beginning. This is still one of the harsh chapters. In fact, that's why I told you just now I want to do 30 and 31 together. Because 31 is also harsh. It has a little thread of hope in it as well. Well, they all have a thread of hope in them, but the tone is somewhat harsh because we're dealing with this really serious problem called apathy. When it comes to apathy, we uh, drastic times call for drastic measures. Okay. So chapter 30 continues in our approach to attacking the problem of apathy, which, as we explained already, is destroying the, the self-assuredness of the animal soul. We want, we want to knock him down a peg or two. But is apathy is not smugness. The source of apathy is the smugness. That's what we explained in the last chapter. The reason why the animal soul is numb and unfeeling is because he feels he's okay. And we have to tell him, no, that's what we call an intervention. You're not okay. And here is a mountain of evidence. That's why in the previous chapter we did that inventory. And we whipped out all of the proof of how the animal soul is causing dysfunction in our lives. And we got thorough, if you remember from last chapter, we dug into the archives to bring out proof <clears throat> and make that point. Okay, now we're continuing on this path. Okay, so it's going to be some harsh stuff. We say in chapter 30, the beginning of chapter 30, in this context we can really appreciate the teaching of our sages. Be humble before all men. Be humble before every man, or all man, all humanity. What does that mean? It means, you look at somebody, and you judge that you are on a higher level of observance than they are. 
And that gives you a false sense, a dangerous, if you're, if you're dealing with apathy, a dangerous sense that you're doing okay. Because you can always find someone <clears throat> who's less religious than you, or completely irreligious, and then you compare yourself and say, well, at least I haven't let myself go to hell like that. And it's a false comparison. Truthfully, you should be comparing not what the picture, what the snapshot looks like, because maybe you're maintaining a decent snapshot. Maybe your life looks okay. But what you should be comparing is the struggle, which only you know in your heart the degree of struggle involved in maintaining your level of service of God. You look at somebody, the Alta Rebbe describes this theoretical uh, person who is, I mean, he, he describes the sort of a paradigm of a, of a person who's irreligious and who is dealing with more severe sins. And, and you're looking at him and saying, well, he does stuff, I would never do that. I mean, look at the kind of stuff that guy falls into. I mean, that's, I don't have problems in those issues. And Al-Tareva says, well, hold on a second. Let's compare the struggle. This guy, his life, what is he exposed to? What does he deal with? What is he surrounded by? And in order for him to even produce the results that he's producing takes quite a struggle. You and your religious life that you're priding yourself in, and it's therefore causing you this sense of, of, of complacency, what degree of struggle does that entail for you? Are you forcing yourself? Are you really fighting with yourself in order to do those things? Or are you basically just coasting because you're used to maintaining this lifestyle? Now, again, I just want to reiterate. I know I've said it already a few times, but I'm going to say it again. This is not the way we would typically talk to somebody. Well, we would never talk to somebody. We would never, this is not the way we typically talk to ourselves. But in this case, we are talking to ourselves this way because we're still dealing with this dangerous condition called apathy. So we're trying to just wipe that smug grin off the animal soul's face and tell him, no, you're not okay. Remember, we're trying to break him down. Think about it like this. He's the ego. The animal soul's the ego, the E-G-O, the edging God out. And we want to smash him so we can make room for the godliness to shine in. So again, just keep focusing on that metaphor from the beginning of chapter 29. You have this big thick beam that won't catch fire, but if you smash it up, now it'll catch fire. So you have this thick, coarse blockage called ego, but if we can break it down, in other words, humiliate it a little bit. I know it's such a scary yeah, term, but yeah, but we want to, but yes, we want to humiliate it a little bit, and it'll break it apart and allow the light to shine through. So we're still following on this, on this path. And we say like this, look at this guy who you're judging as being inferior to you. He struggles way more than you. Because in order for him, maybe he sinned and did things that you would never do. 
that are way beyond your red line. But how much struggle did it take him until he succumbed to that red line? Or what, what you would consider a red line. Or, or maybe just the fact that he did it once a day, not twice a day. Whereas for you, how much intense struggle is required for you to maintain your level of service of Hashem? And he says, if you want to get into it, you can really, you can start looking really closely at yourself. You can really start to scrutinize yourself. And he says, like, look, for instance, at, like, benching. When, when you, you, you finish eating, you finish a meal, and now it's time to bench. Do you force yourself to the point of exertion to read the words and think about their meaning? No, you just coast through it. Okay, so who's struggling? This guy who, okay, maybe he's struggling on very, very low levels. But remember, his Yitzhahara is glowing like a flaming furnace, and he's exposed to all these temptations. By the way, the Altar has a whole paragraph that says, by the way, we're not making an excuse for that guy, <laughs> in case that guy will get a hold of a copy of Tanya, and he'll say, oh, my favorite chapter is chapter 30. It explains why guys like me are the way that we are. There's a whole paragraph where the author of it says, it's not an excuse for him. We're not giving him an excuse, because really, that guy should go to chapter 12 of Tanya and learn and to control himself. Brain rules over the heart. But we're not talking to him right now. You know, it's like, you know, when you're a mommy and you have to, like, discipline one kid... And you realize the, one, the thing that you're telling one kid is the excuse for the other kid. And you have to, don't listen to what I'm telling her. This is for her to, to listen. Not, this is not for you. Okay. So to the guy who actually is um, stumbling in serious uh, sins, um, if he overhears this, we tell him, this is not to you. This is not to you. You go back to chapter 12 and learn about the brain rules over the heart and learn how to start controlling your impulses. So don't, you don't listen to this. But you, who, who am I talking to? The person who's really holding by chapter 30. The person who's come through all these chapters and, and, and is doing the brain controls the heart, meaning... Uh, impulse control, and, and, and also the second interpretation of the brain controls the heart meaning, he's meditating. Remember, the beginning of chapter 29 told me that the guy is meditating. That was the whole scenario. How do you even know? How do you get a timtomalev diagnosis? How do you even know that you're, you're, you have a blockage of the heart? He said in the beginning of chapter 29, he's meditating, and he's not, and he's not feeling anything. Well, if you meditate, you should feel something, and he's not. So that's how he knows. It's how he got his symptomalev diagnosis. He's meditating and there's no emotional outcome. So remember, we're talking to somebody who really is holding by chapter 30. He really got there. He's doing everything else that he learned until that point, and it's not working. So he's been diagnosed now with this serious condition, symptomalev, which, which we, we colloquially refer to as apathy. And we say to him, listen, you're not okay. That guy who you, you use him to make yourself, you look at him to make yourself feel better? Actually, if you look at him, you should feel worse. Because the degree of struggle that he is involved in 
in his day-to-day -day life puts you to shame. Your degree of struggle, you're coasting. You're doing what's easy. You want an example? And one of the, you know, like the, the, the examples of the out that I gives literally is when you bench, how hard is that for you? Do you break a sweat when you bench? What, what about what about tzedakah? What about when it comes to money? You give tzedakah, this is an exact example the author never gives in this chapter. Do you give tzedakah in a way that's comfortable? Meaning it's in the budget, it's allotted for? Or do you give till it hurts? See, that guy that you look down on because he actually stumbles in serious sins, and they are serious sins, and we're not, we're not trying to whitewash that, but his level of emotional conflict trying not to sin and maybe eventually succumbing to the sin is an intense level of emotional conflict tell me how much emotional conflict you experienced last time you wrote a check for tzedakah no you wrote whatever was convenient for you whatever you knew you were giving whatever you've been giving so this is this is the approach of chapter 30 Yeah. I, I get the idea that uh, this person should look at look at oneself, you know, and ask those questions. The author suggests, you know, how hard is this for me? The part about assuming somebody else's struggle, like, how can anyone know what another person is struggling with? Yeah. Right. So how can anybody know what anyone else anyone else is struggling with? Is a great, uh, great question. And let me let me give you two answers. First of all, one answer is. Everything is dependent on context. So, like, for instance, if you were judging somebody, I would tell you, don't judge. You don't know what's in their heart. But here, we're doing the opposite. We're using that person as sort of like this, um, well, at least I'm not like that. You know, at least I haven't let, my go let myself go to hell like that guy. And, and in that case, we want to tell you the opposite. You know what's in his heart? You can fairly safely assume what kind of struggles he has, and it's not the struggles you have. It's much greater than the struggles you have. So yeah, it, it, everything depends on context. That's the, that's the first meaning. Why are we thinking this way? So that's the first answer. The second answer is um, the Altarebbe describes for the purposes of this exercise. And after all, it is an exercise. It's a mental exercise. We're not actually going and like approaching this person. In fact, it doesn't even have to be a real person. It could be like a conglomerate, a composite of people that you know. Um, it's a prototype, or it's a, it's, a, it's a, not a prototype, an archetype. Um, <clears throat> second answer I would give you is that the Altarebbe creates this scenario where he's describing like this preponderance of evidence. He says, look at what this guy's life is like. Look where he spends his time. He describes him as somebody who, who's, who's in the marketplace all day. You know, he's surrounded by the advertisements and by all the, you know, the, 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 he has to go to the city and he's in Manhattan all day. And he's surrounded by the stuff that society bombards us with. So, you know, if his level of uh, service of God is, is, is poor, you know, that's, he's, he's, he's swimming against the tide. Or like, you know, he's, he's swimming upstream, he's resisting. We know what, what his environment is, is hitting him with, and so then we can fairly reasonably understand what kind of struggle it takes to not give in to that. Whereas, you know, I look at myself, and 
I'm not subjected to that kind of test. I'm not in that type of environment. I don't have that type of lifestyle. To the contrary, my little life is pretty conducive to the level of religiosity that I'm comfortable maintaining. So, you know, a big mazel tov, big deal. So you surround yourself with a lifestyle that is conducive to the level of religiosity that you're comfortable with. And then you maintain a level of religiosity that you're comfortable with. Big deal. Yeah. I, I guess it's sort of like a variation. I think what you're trying to say is, is it safe to assume that that you can, to make yourself like understand the context just and to humble yourself, we can assume that everyone's challenges are just as difficult, if not even more difficult than ours, to maintain their, you know. That, that would actually help us to just say, I don't have it before. Someone else has it much, much harder, because this is our goal, right, to be, to be pure. Um, <clears throat> But my question about what you just said is, um, you know, when a person is in their their comfort zone, right? Right. That's a good word, by the way. They're in their comfort zone. I like the word. Thank you. Um, now I forgot what I was going to say. No. <laughs> um, but, I mean, if you could just, um, like, like, for example, like something, let's say something bothers one of us so, so much. Like, why does this person seem to have so few challenges? And just to answer uh -huh. that, like, Okay, so maybe they don't struggle with the things yeah. you can see. Okay, but don't worry about that. Okay, I, that, that's an interesting related topic, but we can't get distracted with it. Because, we're, remember, this chapter has a very specific purpose. So you're asking about a, 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 an issue that comes up, which is, I see why you would think of that when, when talking about this subject. The question was about, what if you look at somebody and say, oh, they have it so easy, they have no challenge. Okay. That's, that's something we could talk about in, 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 at another time. Right now, remember why we're talking about what we're talking about. So it's always important to remember, Tanya is an instruction book, okay? It's not a book of information. It's not just ideas. It's a manual. So everything has to come down to the application. How are we applying it? Right now, we are focused on one problem and solving that one problem. If you are suffering from apathy, how are we going to take care of it? Okay, so one method we said in chapter 29 is give yourself a really thorough, meticulous uh, inventory. Scrutinize yourself and, and, and bring yourself a mountain of evidence that your animal soul is causing dysfunction in your life. Chapter 30 then sort of continues along the same line and says, by the way, Here's another little fun exercise, as long as we're beating ourselves up. You know those people that you look down on and you use them to make yourself feel like you're in better shape than you are? We're going to flip the whole thing. You're going to humble yourself before them. And he starts chapter 30 by saying, and by the way, this isn't just something crazy that I made up, the Altarebbe says. This is a Mishnah. This is from Pirkei You should be humble before all men. By the way, let me add a little detail here. He says, What's the difference between Adam and Ha'adam? According to rabbinical exegesis, the word Adam refers uniquely to Jewish people. Atem Kriyim Adam. But if it says Ben Adam, Bnei Adam, Ha'adam, then it's all human beings, non-Jews as well. 
It's interesting, in Pirkei Oves, in the Siddur, and you know that the Alter Rebbe, in addition to uh, writing Tanya, and in addition to writing a Shulchan Aruch, his Rebbe the Magid told him to write a, uh, a book of Halacha, he also compiled a Siddur, a Siddur based on the Nusach of the Arizal, and the, the Alter Rebbe used many, many different versions of the Siddur that were available, and he put together the exact version, and in his Siddur, he includes Pirkei Ovis, because Pirkei Ovis is part of davening. Summertime, on Shabbos, after Mincha, we say Pirkei Ovis. So Pirkei Ovis is included in the Alter Rebbe Siddur. And the Alter Rebbe was very, very specific regarding every letter of how the Mishnah, different, you know, there's different versions of the Mishnah. It's not like, you know, Teda Shabbat Sav, it's not like the written Torah where everybody has the same letters. Teda Shabbat Peh, there are different, the oral Torah has some, you know, a little bit different versions. And so the Alter Rebbe chose specifically the versions of the Mishnah that he wanted. In fact, to the extent that the Alter Rebbe was meticulous about where to divide the paragraph breaks. It's interesting, the Alter Rebbe has the paragra paragraph breaks between different Mishnahs in different places than other versions. Um, and in the Siddur, in Pirkei Aves, the Alter Rebbe has Bifnei Kol Adam. You should be humble before all man. But the exegetical meaning is before every Jew. In Tanya chapter 30, it says called Ha'adam, which means every human being, Jew or non-Jew. And seemingly, you could say, wow, the Altarebbe wasn't so exact about that hey, about that definite article. The Rebbe came along and explained, no, that the Altarebbe was being very exact, and the Rebbe explained. Chapter, this, this is how I know chapter 29 is, this is how I know that I have to prepare you with all these disclaimers and say, ladies, we're going to be really, really harsh here, but this is not the norm. This is an emergency situation. Like I said earlier, desperate times call for desperate measures. Because the Rebbe explained it like this. Tim to Malev, apathy is a, is, is, is a, is, is a critical threat. It's a very dangerous state to be in. And we're going to take very harsh measures in combating it. And for that reason, we're going to say some stuff that normally we wouldn't say. So for instance, on a regular Shabbos afternoon when you're learning Pirkei Oves, it's, it's enough to say, Bifnei kol adam, humble yourself before every other Jew. Look at every other Jew and say, you know, he may be less religious, I may be more religious, but you know what? It's all about the struggle. And that's enough. That's enough humbleness. But in the context of chapter 30, where we began talking about combating apathy in chapter 29, and we're taking very desperate measures to, to combat this apathy, now he'll whip out the other version of the mission. Not that the alternative made up either version, by the way. The, both versions exist. The question is, in which context do you, do you use which version? So here, the Alter Rebbe takes the version of the Mishnah, which they call Ha'adam, that when we're combating apathy, remember, hold on a second. 
Even your chosenness, your Jewish chosenness, can become spiritually toxic if you are combating apathy. Because you, if you're going to use your Jewishness to placate yourself, when really you need to wake the heck up and realize that you're not okay, then even your Jewishness, we're going to come in and we're going to knock you down a peg from that. We're going to say, hold on a second. You don't know good, upstanding, moral non-Jews who put much more effort into their spirituality than you're putting into yours right now? Of course you do. And even though you might look at the results, whatever it is that they're, they're, they're producing, but hold on, who, who says they have all the commandments that you have? They're not transgressing the same way that you are. So, this, again, this is not a normal methodology. Um, but in the context of apathy, yeah, we're going to whip this one out too, and this becomes fair game as well. And we're going to say, humble yourself before all human beings. All human beings. Cold. Cold means it's a categorical statement. So even somebody that you hear about, you know, wow, that guy is just the dregs of society. Well, you know what? He has a struggle, and it's greater than yours. So you, you, you don't, don't rest on your laurels. Okay, that's the point of chapter 30. Now, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to try to do this. I want to try to do chapter 31, just because, like I'm saying, it's, it's enough harshness, and I don't want to dwell on it and spread it out for two weeks. Does that make sense? Why I want to do that? Okay. All right. So chapter 31 says like this. Chapter 31 acknowledges that this stuff is intense. Chapter 31 is still talking about the smashing our apathy. Chapter 31 starts off and says, and by the way, I know that what we're doing right now is really harsh. It, it, chapter 31 starts with an acknowledgement of that. It says, I know that this is really harsh. It, it starts off and says, even if thinking about the kind of stuff that we've been thinking about since chapter 29, and he says, for an hour or two, he puts that little suggestion in there, the beginning of chapter 31, you're going to sit down and for an hour or two, you're going to really take yourself to task, do that intervention. And even if that's going to cause you to feel brokenhearted, he says like this, you should know. And, and, and even though generally, joy, 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 joy is so important. Remember from chapter 26, joy. Because when you're happy, then you're open and everything's flowing and it's so conducive to serving Hashem properly. And this brokenheartedness, that's not, that's not joy. He says, but I want to make a distinction. There's a difference between sadness and bitterness. Sadness is paralysis, or it leads to paralysis. When, when sadness, depression, those are things that slow you down and incapacitate you, and, and those are real killers in the service of God. What we're talking about here 
And again, this is not our normal approach, but for right now, this approach that we're talking about since chapter 29, it's not joy, it sure isn't joy, but, it, but it's not sadness either. It's not sadness. It's mirirus, like moror at the Seder. By the way, do you know what the, what the lion's favorite part of the Seder was? Moror. Oh. My kids heard that joke a thousand times this Pesach, and last Pesach, and the Pesach before that. By the way, you know the cow's favorite tefillah? Musaf. Musaf. Now we're getting off topic. Don't get off topic. Musaf has nothing to do with this. Okay. Mora. Marirus. He, the Altarebbe sort of, he, he defines this new category of emotion, which generally, yeah, it's all about the joy. And if this is your first class that you've come to, i got to tell you something. Ask anyone here. This is an exception. Because we, normally we're, we're all about the joy. And, and like I said, there's a reason why we're getting into the negativity. But even in the negativity, it's not real negativity. It's not sadness, it's bitterness. Sadness incapacitates me. I can't move. Bitterness is a... Is a it, Bitterness, it, 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 it rouses me to action. It's frustration. It's a healthy frustration with myself. And that's the whole, remember, that's the whole point here is I'm trying to smash this apathy. The apathy is what's telling me, lay back, it's cool, continue business as usual. And this mirirus, this bitterness, is telling me, no, I'm not okay. I'm not going to continue business as usual. And he explains like this. He says, actually, sometimes the bitterness, because it's so different than our normal uh, emotional state that we, our normal target emotional state, our, our, normal, our normal target emotional state as servants of God is joy, because joy is the most conducive emotional state to service of God. And, and the negative emotions block off or are at the very least, not conducive to the service of God. He says, but that's precisely the point. He uses the, the expression, from the forest, you take the wood from the tree to create the handle for the axe with which you chop down the tree. So, if you want to attack the negativity, you want to turn it on itself, Here's what we do. We take some of the negativity to fight the negativity. Fight fire with fire. But a special brand of negativity that will actually be productive. And that is frustration and bitterness. So not only is it okay, but it has this special advantage of using the negative against itself. Which the way he describes it is if I can adequately explain this, is, is almost like what he calls it, you're, you're, you're sweetening the judgments in their source. It's, it's, it's almost like, this might be a ridiculous metaphor, and I haven't thought enough about it, but like a stem cell that brings healing to other cells. The, the, the negativity in its source isn't negative, so if you can reach back to the source of it and then 
introduce some of that, you can transform the negativity as it's experienced in our lives. So the negativity as we experience it is sadness, and that's garbage. There's nothing productive about that. We know that from chapter 26. We don't, there's nothing productive about the sadness. Got to move on from it. But it stems from something, I mean, it, it, it devolves from something that, if you go to its source, isn't dysfunctional. It's actually holy. Like everything in its source, ultimately, if you trace it to its ultimate source, everything is holy. So what is, the, what is negativity in its source where it's still holy? What's holy negativity? It's almost, that's an oxymoron. It's not almost an oxymoron. That's an oxymoron. Holy negativity. Holy negativity is frustration, bitterness. Because even though it's negative, it leads to a positive. It's negative, yeah, but it's a negative. It doesn't say you can't, you can't, you can't, which sadness says you can't, you can't, you can't, which is negativity, which breeds negativity. Frustration says, and we wouldn't use this on others, but we can use it on ourselves, is, of course you can. Why aren't you? You're better than this. This is not you. Got my water at the very end of the class. <laughs> so we're using the, uh, we're giving, uh, uh, to use a, an English phrase, we're giving the negativity a taste of its own medicine. But not just for the sake of, you know, like, you know, making a point. There's a, there's a, there's a tactical advantage to it. Sometimes when you got to get rid of the negativity, <clears throat> I guess maybe it's a little bit homeopathic. You use, you know, like cures like. So you use some of the same stuff against itself in order to transform it. So there's negative negativity and there's positive negativity. Negative negativity, you know, stop negativity, that's uh, sadness. Positive negativity is frustration, which we call uh, mirirus. So... And, and he calls these the holy gvurais. There's chesed and there's gvura. So happiness is from chesed. Chesed is this open flowingness. The joy comes from chesed. Gvura is, is contraction, constriction. And normally what comes from that emotionally is, is, is sadness. Or at least when, 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 when gvura gets out of hand, there's too much constriction. But there's also a constriction which is this um, self-discipline, taking oneself to task, um, being very harsh with oneself for a productive purpose, for a productive outcome. Yeah. So he says like this. He gives you a little monologue, and he says you should, you know, you sit yourself down, and and you, and you should say a speech to yourself. And he gives you the script, actually. He gives you a script. I don't know if you have to follow the script or if it's just an example. But here is the um, frustration monologue. Truly and without a doubt, I am far removed from God, and I am abominable and loathsome. This is not your typical. It's not your typical day, right? This is we're dealing with apathy over here. Yet, all this 
is myself alone. Just me. Don't take it so personally. It's just you that's abominable and loathsome. That is to say, the body with its enlivening soul. Watch what happens here. Watch the flip. I am disgusting, but you know what? It's just me that's disgusting. Not the real me. Yet there is within me a veritable part of God, right, going back to chapter 2, which is found even within the most worthless of the worthless, namely the divine soul with a spark of veritable godliness which is clothed within it and animates it, except that it is, as it were, in a state of exile. I have this precious, beautiful, godly soul that is in a state of exile within my body and my animal soul. This is an outrage. This is an outrage. I mean, see where the frustration, how I'm flipping the frustration, and I'm turning it into real indignance, positive indignance. Therefore, to the contrary, the further I am separated from God, Right? So I'm looking at myself, I'm disgusting, and therefore, eh, give up. No, no, no. I'm disgusting, and therefore, you know what? This is, an, this is a travesty. I'm, supposed to, I'm, I'm rousing myself here. This is a travesty. So therefore, to the contrary, the further estranged I am from God, the more contemptible and loathsome, the deeper in exile is my divine soul, and the more greatly is she to be pitied. The more greatly is she, the godly souls refer to a feminine, the more greatly is she to be pitied. Compassion! You heard about this travesty, about this beautiful, pristine, godly soul that's stuck in the mire like this. This is pitiful. But I don't just want your pity. I'm talking to myself here. I want action. Therefore, I shall make it my whole aim and desire to extricate her and liberate her from the exile in order to restore her to her father's house as in her youth before she was clothed in my body when she was absorbed in his blessed light and completely united with him. There's this beautiful little princess and she's living in a, in a, in a hot, in a, in a stinky, nasty hot like, like the worst of the commoners, but she's a princess. And therefore, I will make it my life's aim to bring that princess back to the palace of her father. I have this beautiful, pristine soul, and she's stuck in this situation with my contemptible, loathsome body and animal soul. And if I know any way I can give her a taste of home, how can I give her a taste of home? Every mitzvah that I do, every time I study Torah, every time I daven. Now she will be again united with him, may he be blessed, if I will bend my whole aim toward the Torah and the commandments to clothe therein all her ten faculties, as mentioned above, especially in the precept of prayer. He's saying especially in davening, this happens. Bringing her back home happens especially in davening to cry unto the Lord in her distress of exile in my despicable body, to liberate her from her prison, 
that she may attach herself to him, may he be blessed. That's the, uh, that's the monologue. That's the, uh, that's the uh, motivational speech that we give ourselves. So we started off with apathy. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. Everything's cool. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah. That was chapter 29. And we said, no, you're not. And here's the mountain of evidence. Intervention. Then chapter 30, in case he was still saying, yeah, yeah, no, but I really, no, but really, I am okay. I mean, look, look at that guy. We said, no, actually, look at that guy should bring you to the opposite conclusion. Because he's struggling. You're not struggling. Right? That was chapter 30. Then chapter 31 was, and by the way, after we've done all this intervention and you're feeling like a shmate, I just want you to know this is good. Because we're not doing this to you so that you should surrender and give up hope and feel like there's no point. That's the sadness. This is not sadness. This is frustration and bitterness. This is motivation. And the end like the takeaway from the whole thing is, and really this is the um, this is the bottom line of chapter thirty-one, is you should come away with a new sense of identity. The real bottom line, if you if you finished, you know, if we think about twenty-nine, thirty, thirty-one as like a suite of chapters, the real bottom line where where it comes together is we should leave with a new sense of identity. And the new sense of identity should be, even though, remember the back, beginning of chapter 29, we were saying, <clears throat> only Hillel, <clears throat> and Tzadikim like him, like, but Hillel used to say, when he used to go eat, he said, oh, let me, let me go do a favor for the little creature, because he saw his body as something outside of himself. And he identified with the godly soul. And we're saying, but you don't identify with the godly soul. Your personality is your animal soul. Now we're coming full circle and we're saying like this. Yeah, it's true. Naturally, my personality that I relate to is my animal soul. But at least in truth, I know I know the truth is the real me is my godly soul. So here, here's the bottom line. Let me wrap it up for you. You can have a healthy frustration with your animal soul and body while at the same time cherishing your godly soul. And in fact, those two feelings can work in tandem. Because when I find my, myself contemptible, meaning my physical self, my ego self, that just reminds me, it refreshes me with new vigor to reapply myself to this, this lifetime of work of nurturing and, and, and taking care of the precious godly soul, which I know deep down is the real me. So the bottom line is the identity shift. That's what I want you to come away from chapter 31 with, identity shift. That I have to fight the false me from obstructing the real me. And because it's me versus me, yeah, there's going to be emotional conflict. These are, there's this emotional paradox going on. But it's all fine. It's all okay. And, 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 if, and if we're dealing with apathy, not only is okay, it's okay, but it's necessary. All right? Okay, let's officially end here, and then we can pick it up.